0: Hello, and welcome to Social Design Insights, the podcast that brings you the leading voices of the social design movement from the fields of architecture, engineering, planning, art, and whoever else we can find that's out there trying to make the world a better place. I'm your host, Eric Kessel. If you've been around the last couple of weeks, we've been asking ourselves who designs the designers. At some point, we got curious about all of our guests and how they came to do what they do and how they were supported. So we wanted to get some intel on... What created this field? Uh, What allowed these good intentions to become good actions, good products, good buildings? So this week, we're joined by Kyle Reese. Kyle is currently the Senior Director of Global Data Services at TechSoup by way of a 25-year tenure at the Ford Foundation, where he last served as Manager of Strategy and Operations. Beyond that, Kyle is a leader within the foundation community, previously serving as Board Co-Chair of the Grants Manager Network, a 2,500-member association of Foundation Grants Managers. He also sits on the National Advisory Committee of Project Streamline, a collaborative effort of grant-making and grant-seeking organizations trying to improve grant application and reporting practices. What does this all add up to? Well, Kyle's been in the world of philanthropy for most of his career, barring a quick tryst as a printmaker, which he'll be telling us about. And in this career in philanthropy, Kyle's helped shape what we understand as our current social design field, especially in the United States. Most of your favorite social designers depend on grant makers, foundations, governments, institutions, and philanthropists in some way. In a roundabout way, it's these institutions that have been designing design all along. In this interview, Kyle and I are going to delve deeper and talk about the ways that design intersects with corporate authority and the role of a designer in shaping a better future, and how designers and philanthropy are working together to design their own systems of support. So let's get to the interview. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on.
0: Kyle, I'm so glad that you're here. And especially at at this point in the arc of our show and and the arc of the segment. And you know, we're coming up on two years of of social design insights and we've had all these really amazing social designers on here talking to us about their practices. And we got curious about, you know, how these practices are supported and, and basically how they go about doing what they do? What is the non design portion of this designer 's life, and so we we framed up this segment and and started talking to people who exist in what I keep calling an ecosystem of support, foundations, philanthropies, media personalities, consultants, etc that kind of exist around the social design community and within it and basically have helped it grow and and prosper over the last 20 years. So you fit that mark pretty damn well. Um, Well, Thank you. Thank you. On behalf of all of us, thank you. Uh, And I'm therefore very glad that that you were able to join us. So, you know, in terms of of my first question, I guess I would say, could you tell us a little bit about – how you got started. I know your education was not in design. It was more of a liberal arts education. And then you moved into the world of philanthropy. Can you rewind the clock for us and tell us a little bit about like how you kind of came into this field?
1: It started really, I I was always interested in design, even in junior high school and high school. uh, I took a, a self screening class in high school and thought I wanted to be a graphic designer. And even to the point where when I was out of college, for, I didn't do a whole lot in college around design, but after college, one of my first jobs was uh, as an offset pressman at a, at a firm in Jersey City, New Jersey called Wall Street Reproductions. I had never done it, but a friend of mine worked there in their sales and got me a job working on a press as an assistant. So I was working on a, uh, for those of who might know this, of a Heidelberg 36 inch four color press, which is an amazing machine. If you're in the industry, you would know exactly what I'm talking about, which is it was this huge machine that you literally climbed all over. Uh, and my role was to pour the ink, the four different colors, and to load a lot of the paper, and really to support the pressman who was doing uh, really amazingly large runs. Uh, what we used to do is support the Wall Street firms, and I'm dating myself a little bit, when they would put out what are called stock tips. This is pre-internet. And basically, they would make recommendations the night before about a stock that they wanted to recommend either be bought or sold. And they had a, a little write-up. This was you know, Merrill Lynch and uh, EF Hutton. And, and then uh, they would send it to press to us. We would print it up overnight, and then they would issue it the next morning, and people would buy stocks based on those recommendations. So it was very time-sensitive, and sometimes we would run thousands or tens of thousands of these. And so that's how I really got my, uh, you know, literally my my hands wet on, on designing. It was really an amazing process. I did it for maybe a year, year and a half. So not too long, and it was very hard. Though I think one of the reasons I stopped was they put me on the graveyard shift, which was working from about five p.m. until sometimes five in the morning, eight in the morning.
0: Didn't Stephen King write a novella about that at one
1: point? <laughs> he probably did. And and also I think it was really hard, uh, you know, on the body. You know, you're you're dealing with a lot of chemicals and ink and everything, and so uh, so that's when I ended up moving on and, and eventually getting a job at the Ford Foundation. And that was also kind of a surprise. I, I really didn't know what foundations did. I knew uh, about Ford because I knew that it worked internationally and I thought that I wanted to get involved uh, with the international work. And I got a job in their archives and I really didn't know what archivists did either at that point, so, <laughs> but I sort of talked my way into a job there and then was there for 25 and a half years Wow. 9,384 days, uh, to be precise, which is pretty amazing.
0: So let, let's start working through it. Uh, you know, beginning with days of, of an archivist, you know, you built a body of work that includes really some of the foundations of our current social design movement. Was your work at the Ford Foundation always surrounding design or is design a component of what you did? What was the balance
1: no, you know, it really wasn't a whole lot until really I'd say kind of late in my career there. One of the things I saw, so there were you know Ford was had some really amazing people doing uh, work, supporting work in some of the most important issues of our time, human rights and poverty uh, and, and the inner city. and I noticed that, and this is more on the i guess I'd call it the design thinking side, is that Some of our best program officers were ones who really were very much using, I think of it as almost like a designer's process or mentality in effecting change in their particular areas of interest. You know, they would bring, they would spend a lot of time out in the field talking to different constituents in the field. They would bring together uh, constituents that, we're working towards a common goal, but maybe not together. And so there, there was very much of a convening role, uh, understanding the ecosystem and really getting out there. And I think the, the really even today, the, the best program officers, the most effective program officers are ones who do that, who are really out listening and understanding what's going on on the ground, you know, rather than just having, you know, a theory of change per se and not testing that on the ground. I think it's important to have a theory of change and to have a kind of a, a strategy around you know what you think is going on. But then the best program officers really, really tested that out and adjusted as they went and brought in constituents. So I think that was a kind of a sort of design thinking mentality that I saw and really appreciated in the, in the most effective program officers. Uh,
0: when you say late in your career, what uh, what years are we talking about?
1: well I think I, I I really started to put uh, see the value i was I was getting I'm not even sure whether it was personally first or professionally but I always found myself around designers and I, I kind of hung around those water coolers i I think I probably should have been an architect because my mind works kind of at the intersection between uh, like art and science and and so listening uh, in on those, and, and I started to get involved in a couple of different organizations and to really appreciate them. Uh, I got to know uh, Cheryl Heller at the uh, Design for Social Innovation program at the School of Visual Arts. I uh, was introduced to her through a mutual friend, and really she was just uh, just building this uh, Design for Social Innovation program, hadn't even broken ground on on what would become the school She's done amazing work in the space, uh, particularly uh, around graphic design, and and really, uh, I think that she said that that was maybe the first master's program in uh, design for social innovation in the country. It's now been going on about seven years, I think. This is maybe their seventh year, and they're putting out really a whole cadre of young designers who are are using design. To address the social issues, so I, I found that really impressive.
0: Yeah, we're gonna have to get her on the show.
1: Yes, you definitely should. She's she's outstanding, uh, and really, and just published a book called "The Intergalactic Design Guide." That I think I mentioned in in my write up just came out. It's number one on the green business charts. Uh, I don't know how big those charts are, but, <laughs> I, <think laughs> but I, I read it. Uh, I think it came out in in October. It's an outstanding book. I highly recommend it to you and and really anyone on this podcast because it really talks about the how seven steps for how do you go about the process of uh, what she calls social design and I, and and she comes from the, the so the title intergalactic design guide really comes from this sort of funny notion that where she said that if there were an intergalactic design contest of who has kind of designed their planet the best, you know, that Earth would be probably in last place and definitely not yeah. move, move on to the next round. Uh, sure. <laughs> but I think in seriousness, she sees design as a way to help change and fix some of the problems that we have around how we interact with the planet, around poverty and some other issues, and thinks that really, in many respects, that's a designer's problem to solve.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's why we do the show. And that's why we, we create this, this little community that we have here.
1: Yeah,
0: and, You know, you, you described meeting Cheryl and, and some of these other engagements as, you know, almost serendipitous. But I'm sure there's there's a lot of things that come across your desk over the last, you know, 30 years. How do you make decisions about the projects that you're going to get involved with, the projects that you're going to support, the ones that are not. I mean, what is your internal compass for what constitutes good social design?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. One of the things that we also, and I'm sure you know John Kerry.
0: Yes, former guest of the show. He was uh, on in January helping us talk about design
1: as resistance. Uh, Yes, I was just with him the other night. We had a design vanguard dinner and I'll say more about that a little bit later. But one thing I think I try to do in all of my philanthropy you know, one is not try to do too much, you know, not try to take on a ton of projects, but to really stay focused on issues and people that I feel are in some ways laying the groundwork for others. I think, you know, the Design for Social Innovation program at the School of Visual Arts is a great example where, I mean, they, they were supported, you know, I provided some some minor support to them, but I felt that what she was doing there is doing there is so important because she is helping essentially graduate a whole cadre of young designers who are going to go out into the world and you know start their own uh, organizations or companies or make changes and they will you know move into the whole ecosystem whether that's the nonprofit sector, the for-profit sector, and they do a lot of work with for-profits, some of the major corporations in the world where, by the way, I think that is where design will have its biggest impact. You know, corporations are the ones who can really change the ballgame. I don't think it's government and I don't think it's nonprofit, but they have to change their mentality around design and around how when they do design products or services, thinking really much more holistically about what they're designing. We talked about that at this Design Vanguard meeting where we said, what, you know, what is a if there were a kind of a designer ethic, you know, like a, a Hippocratic oath for designers, what would the pledge be that they'd have to take? And one of the things I said is all of their designs would have to consider the entire cycle. Of what happens with their designs. Interesting. From when they conceptualize them, what are the resources that are needed to create them? What are they putting out into the world? Uh, So Tim Brown from IDEO, who was there, said one of the things that he struggled with in designing for IDEO was, was he just creating products that are just going to end up in the landfill? And that his legacy is that he created a lot of awesome products that ended up in the landfill. How good do you feel about that if that's you know obviously it's more complicated than that, but I think we can't just have that mentality of just be designing beautiful products and not thinking about how are they going to ultimately affect people's lives or the earth. You design products the way nature designs things. everything recycles back and then starts all over again and we're definitely not there.
0: But you see it coming. I mean, you feel like that's the sort of next evolution of social design thinking.
1: I do, in in a way, I do. I I think that I think that's what's needed, absolutely. Because you know, I think we can kick the can down the road a little bit more, but probably not too much more. Because you know, we can't just keep you know, uh, we we can't discount the Earth as something that we don't have to consider and you know into our process. I think that the value of a sustainable Earth needs to be built into the whole corporate model, if
0: you will. You're listening to Social Design Insights. We hope you've been enjoying these thoughts from Kyle Reese of TechSoup about how he came into this world of philanthropy and its foundations. But we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to be talking more about the future of philanthropy and Kyle's current work there at TechSoup. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Social Design Insights after the break. Welcome back to Social Design Insights. We've been speaking with Kyle Reese in TechSoup of the philanthropic sector. And Coming up, we're going go down and some brass tacks. Welcome back to Social Design Insights. We've been speaking with Kyle Reese of TechSoup about the philanthropic sector and its underpinnings. Coming up, we're going to drill down to some brass tacks or I'm mixing metaphors again. At any rate, you know what I mean. Kyle is going to give us his thoughts on the future of philanthropy and what the social design community has to look forward to, especially in the way of the systems that people like Kyle and his community are creating to advance the field of social design. Let's rejoin the conversation already in progress. That's interesting. Uh, you know, when you're mentioning about Tim Brown, I started thinking about Wally, you know, and that sort of opening scene. And have you seen Wally? Yes. Where, like, he's just moving tons and tons of trash. And, you know, all of these great entrepreneurs and, and tech gods who are creating all of this stuff, you know, a thousand years from now, that's, that's what's going to be left. Yeah. And uh, anyway, we should do a show well, about that.
1: Just on that point. I think that that is true. And to me, this is a form of design. When you look at like Facebook, for instance, or Twitter, right now they don't have any accountability really to the harm that they've created in the world. You know, yes, you know, they've created a lot of good as well. But what sort of liability should Mark Zuckerberg have if the presidential election got turned because of? fake Russian accounts you know there's like no accountability or if Donald Trump can create a nationalist movement on Twitter does uh you know Jack Dorsey hold any responsibility I mean I'm always shocked that Twitter for instance and I you know I love Twitter I use it but I'm totally shocked that there's sort of a you know we just want to let free speech happen and yeah there's some bad actors but there are people like dying and people's lives who are being affected permanently as a result of Twitter. And is there no sense of obligation about how do you address that? Like what there's like no liability there at all.
0: So I agree, but I'm going to play the devil's advocate. Tell us, well, tell the audience, why is that a design issue? You know, if you're a young designer and you're looking at institutions like Facebook and Twitter and their lack of accountability, and you want to remake the world in a way that's more socially conscious and environmentally conscious, what would you say to like a young UX designer that's sitting at their job at Facebook or Twitter now? Like, how should they engage that as a problem?
1: Yeah. You know, it's a hard one. And, you know, I'm not a fan of kind of regulating it away, because, you know, I agree that I think one of the reasons why so much has been created, I really the whole internet or whatever you want to call it, you know, happened because there was a, you know, a sense of, you know, there weren't restrictions being placed on people's imagination. So don't get me wrong, I I think that's wonderful. And what's interesting, and maybe I think what we could do is just revisit the techies code you know the programmers code because when you think about the early days of the internet there was really i think a sense of shared responsibility you know a kind of this open source uh, mentality a we're in it together type of you know obviously everybody wasn't like that but you know you look at linux and you look at all of the early creators um, on which the really entire internet is running Uh, And, in fact, you could argue all of these kind of billions and billions of dollars that are being created are being created on what were, in some ways, meant to be open source platforms, you know, and weren't meant to be monetized per se. You know, I mean, just I'm sure you have a conversation with Tim Berners-Lee and you could get a a mouthful on that uh, alone. But I do think that there's been less, uh, you know, I think it changed uh, when it got uh, to be just corporations doing it. And, you know, I'm not anti-corporation either because I think that they have enabled this to reach so many people and to grow and they've been able to apply resources to it. But I feel like something has been lost along the way and that designers do have a kind of an ethical responsibility to think through the the different scenarios and, and they can't always know them, but I think they should, once they do know them, you know, once Twitter knows now what is resulting, you know, some of the hate speech that's going out on their channels, I mean, I feel like they have a responsibility to triple down in terms of saying, no, that's not acceptable. And to, you know, and there are mechanisms that allow you to do that. I think, you know, you could design solutions to some of the problems many not all but many of the problems and you of course have to keep free speech in mind but i do think that i don't think that the corporations by and large have stepped up to the plate on that score
0: I think most of our audience would agree with you, <laughs> as would I. And let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about ethics. One of the things we wrestle with a lot on this show is people who want to go into social design but but wrestle with the economics of it. People who want to practice it and it's a nights and weekends thing um, and you know they've got their day job, which pays the rent. And the day job works for, you know, the big corporation. And, you know, we all kind of end up full time doing what they want and in our spare time doing what humanity needs. How do we upset that paradigm? How do we create sustainable economic models where people can go – people can graduate from school and say, look, I'm going to be a designer. I'm going to work at Twitter. I'm going to work at this architecture firm. I'm going to do, you know, some form of design um, and I'm going to take my values – with me and not compromise them?
1: Well, I I mean, I think it's, you know, to me, I think you bring it into the corporation itself. You know, again, that's right. The jobs are, and you do need to pay off your school loans, and you do want to do something that's meaningful with a community. And when you get that job at Twitter or Google or Facebook or wherever, you know, I think that one of the things I would do, and I, I did this at the Ford Foundation is to either search for or create community that says yes, we're trying to create a product and this great product. I would try and find out is there a group that's thinking about the ethics of you know design or you know uh, kind of how to make Twitter more socially responsible and not from a like a corporate social responsibility move of you know how do we make a grant that's going to look good but but how you know how do you how do you think through that and i think that's actually where corporations also can look to nonprofits because for every corporation that is existing and that is creating good and amazing products but also some of the darker sides of that product There is, I'm sure, a nonprofit that is probably addressing that darker side. So, if, for instance, you know, and I'm just hypothesizing, you know, let's say uh, Facebook has uh, created an increase in uh, domestic violence as a result of somebody being able to stalk somebody else, or, you know, I don't, I'm just using an example, but maybe you look and not only do you try to obviously decrease that through your Facebook and having kind of ethical, but also look at who are the uh, organizations that are addressing that issue and is there a way? And and you might even know that it's happening in a certain community and you go out and talk to those and, and not just make you know a, a one-off grant to a domestic violence shelter down the street, although I think that's a good idea, but maybe be a partner in trying to solve the issue of domestic violence, you know, that, uh, something like that.
0: That's so interesting to me, you know, I mean, the idea that, you know, corporations, uh, if the state will not make them, pay for the the adverse consequences of their activity, could lean into those activities, right? And Exxon creates pollution. God willing, uh, the governments of the world would step up and make them pay for the cost of the environmental damage that they do. And they'd all go out of business. But barring that, you know, Exxon could actually engage – with the nonprofits that are actually working against the effects of what Exxon does and go beyond just the sort of PR grant where, okay, you know, here's $50,000 to Greenpeace. Look at all the good that we did. But a real sincere interaction and, and, you know, nonprofits could meet them, you know, at the battle line and basically say, okay, well, you know, if you really want to help this community, this is what needs to be done. I think that's, that's an amazing vision to, to think about in the future. Kyle, you, you spent 25 years, uh, at the Ford Foundation and you've recently moved to TechSoup. I'm going to confess some ignorance here that Difference between TechSoup and NGO Source, is NGO Source like a program under TechSoup? Or is that a separate organization?
1: Yes, uh, NGO Source is, is essentially a program run by TechSoup. TechSoup is a nonprofit public charity, but also uh, what's called a social enterprise. in that TechSoup gets a majority, probably 90% plus of our budget is, is revenue generated. So even though all of our work is for uh, social good, we are able to generate revenue from some of the activities that we do, and that is what uh, enables TechSoup to scale its work. It's why, for instance, we are last year able to support 150,000 organizations. We're able to get roughly a billion dollars in donated technology and services through TechSoup, and that's in every country in the world that we operate, and so... And we do. We think that we can only serve 150,000 organizations because we have a revenue model. And NGO Source is a, is a, an example of that, where it's a service that we run, uh, really on behalf of foundations, uh, where we are doing essentially what the IRS does when they determine if when somebody applies to be a public charity, a 501c3 public charity, in the U.S. the IRS. It's the one that reviews your application and then decides if you are eligible as a charity and for charitable donations. The IRS doesn't do that for non-U.S.-based charities. And so we, uh, TechSoup, do that for foundations that want to support charities outside of the U.S. Uh, We actually do what the IRS does, and the the law says that if we can determine that they would be what's called the equivalent of a 501c3 public charity, then the uh, foundation can support that, can make a grant to that organization. So we have a legal staff that does that. And that's an enterprise that started just, it was actually created by the philanthropic sector out of a need that existed. Uh, They sent a a request for proposal out, TechSoup won that proposal. Uh, went live in 2013 and five years later we are essentially self-sustaining and we have a revenue of something like uh, three million dollars a year
0: well that's incredible and yeah, i'm so glad we had the on the show because I, I love hearing these stories i think that there's a story that's always told about Nonprofits and especially designers in nonprofits, starving, living on couches, uh, you know begging for grants, and everything like that and I think there 's another story to be told about you know entrepreneurialism uh, within the nonprofit community. Nonprofit practitioners who are branching out, creating new things, foundations and nonprofits who are banding together, utilizing services like NGO Source. So, thank you for that. And thank you for giving us a window into this world. And I, I hope that all of our listeners really take it to heart and do some further research, which they can find on our website about um, how work gets done.
1: All right. Well, thank you so
0: much. You've been listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. I'd like to thank my guest of the week, Kyle Rees of TechSoup, for all of his insights into the world of philanthropy and how it supports the world of design and what we can look forward to, especially by way of the new structures we can all create and how we can start to think about design as a necessary way of thinking rather than just a service. Next week, I'm going to take up Kyle's suggestion. We're going to be talking to Cheryl Heller of the School of Visual Arts about how to organize academic programs around this new kind of design thinking and the role that academics play in shaping the field. You'll want to tune in for that. To learn more about Kyle and his work, please visit our website at currystonefoundation.org. If you have any feedback on the show, ideas for guests, or just want to chat, you can write to me at eric at socialdesigninsights.com. That's E-R-I-C at socialdesigninsights.com. Social Design Insights is produced by Baruch Zeigner, and at the break, we are listening to The Only Green World by Rumors of the Big Wave from the album Burning Times. Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Curry Stone Foundation. As of a month ago, we now have our very own brand new social media handles. So find us, Social Design Insights, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please follow and subscribe because I will be posting my very own personal karaoke of the entire Mariah Carey discography at some point during the holidays. You definitely don't want to miss that.